0: This show is brought to you by the North Face. Now, the North Face have been my sponsors for the last eight or nine years, and I'm really proud to be involved with this fantastic outdoor brand. Now, they've been in the outdoor industry for over fifty years, and they are the premier supplier of authentic, innovative, and technologically advanced exploration apparel. For your footwear, equipment, accessories, they've got the best stuff. Now, their lightweight and weather-resistant Flight Series running gear is my absolute favorite. So. If you're into trail running, if you're into desert running, if you're into just exploring our mountains, then this is the go-to gear. And it's designed to endure, engineered to help you through the heat, through heavy downpours, or whatever else comes your way so that you can run no matter what, every day, any weather, any terrain, and never stop exploring. If you'd like to check out their whole range, go to thenorthface.co.nz.
1: Welcome, Welcome to Pushing the Limits, the podcast that gets deep into the psyche of extraordinary achievers across all genres, cutting to the chase to unlock the secrets of their success, their achievement, philosophies, and motivations. Join us in the quest to find out what makes the movers and shakers of our world tick and what gems of wisdom we can learn from them. Now, over to your host, Lisa Tamati.
0: Well hi everybody, it's Lisa Tamady here from Pushing the Limits and today I'm doing something very radical, I'm setting a new trend. You know how people have uh, guest uh, posts on their blog, well I'm having a guest uh, blo- uh, a guest podcaster um, and today I've got with me Lynn DeGrasse. Now Lynn has had me on her podcast, she has a wonderful podcast that she's going to tell you a little bit about as well and Lynn has been my editor and helps me with my community building and a whole lot of stuff. Now in the next couple of weeks I'm going to be rushing all around the country speaking to over 15,000 children and speaking at massive women's conferences and uh, fire brigade and all sorts of great sort of stuff. So I'm absolutely overloaded and overwhelmed and so Lynn has kindly offered to um, do an interview for me and she's Already got it in the bag, and you're going to be hearing that today, and this is a really exciting woman that we're having on the show. So firstly, welcome Lynn to Pushing the Limits as editor, and you know this very, very well, but I just wanted to introduce you to the audience. Audience meet Lynn. Lynn meet the audience. Hello, audience. <laughs> Lynn, just tell them briefly about your podcast so that yeah, maybe they'll go and hop over there too and check out your, your work.
2: Great yeah well my podcast is called Inside Knowledge and it's all about building resilience so it's a a very general conversation about all the different areas where resilience plays a part so you know in some ways it ties in with pushing your limits and it's it's kind of looking at some of the tools that we can use the mindsets that we need um, and, and so it's probably you know the people I interview aren't aren't necessarily climbing mountains, um, but they're climbing their own mountains and they really share practical advice about ways that you can, um, you know, build your own resilience. So it's, yeah.
0: it's good fun. That, that sort of uh, tied in, I was on your show and of course resilience is a big theme that I teach too in my Mindset Academy and so on. Um, so I think it's really great, you know, that we're working together now. Now Lynn, tell us about this wonderful lady that you've interviewed and what we're, what we can expect on the interview
2: yeah Alani she is amazing when she first approached me and I read her profile my eyes were just standing out on stalks yeah. <laughs> and then when I met her it was like she's this five foot three slight woman um you know she's definitely got a lot of uh character and strength but but when you read her profile she's a ex uh, United States military she's served overseas she's chased terrorists she's uh chase sex traffickers, she's been a bodyguard for for high-up military, she's travelled the world as a bodyguard. So she she really professionally has pushed the limits.
0: She's a five foot three woman. <laughs> yes, yes. Now we're used to seeing on the movies all these big hunking men um as bodyguards. Um so this is gonna be a really interesting uh interview today. So sex trafficking,
2: terrorists
0: sounds like quite a horrific life, but a crazy adventurous one.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, and I, what I love is that she she turns that on its head, so she uses the fact that people underestimated her to her advantage, mm. and I think a lot of people can relate to that, that it's actually sometimes to your advantage that people think you're not as good as you really are.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I can't wait to hear this interview myself. I hope that everyone out there in Pushing the Limits land enjoys this interview, enjoys Lynn as the interviewer this time, and hops on over to her podcast as well you can find that on itunes and everywhere else inside knowledge um so thanks very much lynn and we look forward to hearing from alani and i'll be back soon once
2: i get back from touring all over the place thanks so much lisa hi alani thanks for joining me on the show today hi lynn thanks so much for having me i'm really looking forward to talking to you because you've had a very interesting career possibly quite different from a lot of our listeners Mm -hmm. Yes,
3: a little unusual.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So um, I'm going to start as usual and ask you um, what your definition is for resilience.
3: Yeah, so uh, I'm a military lady, so I try to keep things simple. And so for me, resilience just means the ability to bounce back in difficult circumstances.
2: And perhaps you can talk a little bit about what those difficult circumstances have been. Um, Maybe share a little bit about your career history, if you will
3: yeah absolutely. um so uh ever since I was a little girl, i've always known that I was born to serve others and protect life, and that desire led me to a life in the united states military and so um right after college, I commissioned as an officer and eventually ended up as a special agent uh, working for the air force and That career path led me to some very unusual places. Um, So as special agents, we are basically the FBI and the CIA of the Air Force. And um, I started my career in Japan working a lot of drug cases. I started a countrywide program to prevent the sexual abuse of children uh, via the Internet From there, I deployed to the Middle East where I worked with special operations and targeting senior uh, terrorist leadership. And from there, I returned to Japan very briefly and then moved to our headquarters in Quantico where I oversaw our counterintelligence support to technology protection investigation. So, essentially, what that means is just making sure that foreign countries aren't stealing our country's most sensitive technologies. Um, And then from there, I was selected to be the commander of another one of our Middle East units. So it meant a year in the desert once again, again, doing counterintelligence, counterterrorism work. And then from there, I was selected to be the senior personal security advisor, which basically just means bodyguard, to a senior government official. So I was in charge of the team of bodyguards that would provide the protection. So,
2: yeah. So that sounds pretty amazing, and. Is it, was it a very stressful job? I mean, what were your levels of stress a lot of the time?
3: Oh my goodness. It was so stressful. Um, and it became increasingly stressful over time, right? So there were just kind of a, a lot of different factors that came into play. The first being um, the United States has been at war since 2001. And so uh, we have multiple war fronts at this point. And so just Naturally, the ebb and flow of deploying um, it's been very consistent for the u s service members, so um, it, we're just used to a very high operational tempo, which is not normal, and so the the stress has really taken a toll on the force and and myself personally so that on top of the fact that especially in the desert, I mean, for my special operations deployment, it was six months straight of I think I had new year's Eve off. But aside from that, it was, you know, 12 to 18 hours a day um, being shot at and being bombed while you're on the base as well. And so that added a different factor as well. And then uh, towards the end of my active duty career, I had another unusual circumstance to where um, I was supposed to have a decompression assignment after I was in the desert for a year, but they ended up sending me to the Pentagon to be the bodyguard for a little while. And so... I was going pretty hard while I was in the desert and come to find out I would have no rest moving into that two-year assignment. So it was just a move from maybe an average of 60 hours a week to at times 80, 90, 100 hours a week. I mean, it was just really absurd, but
2: (laughs) yeah. So a lot of travel
3: when you're a bodyguard? Yes. Oh my goodness. We did so much travel. So aside from the normal visits to the various bases, on the U.S. mainland, there was a lot of international travel as well, meeting with foreign counterparts um, at their equivalent senior levels of government for whatever country we were visiting. And so uh, the benefit, or one of the perks, I guess we'll say, of working for such a senior government official is they have access to the same fleet of jets that Air Force One belongs to. And so there's no security. You just literally drive up to the plane and go, which allows us to hit sometimes three countries in one day um, because you're just hopping on the flight immediately and, and taking off, staying for a few hours in one country for maybe a couple meetings and then going. So to be frank, I mean, sometimes we didn't know what country we were in or what time zone because you were just so exhausted from the jet lag and um, always being mentally on, you know, and yeah. scanning for dangers and whatnot. So yeah, yeah. I
2: was going to say that you must, your level of alert must have needed to be very high for a lot of that time.
3: Yes, it absolutely needed to be. Um, In personal security work, your brain is absolutely your best asset and you train it and you hone your body to detect signs of threats. And so, yeah, um, absolutely trying to make sure that you were protecting the protectee from from everything and everyone. I mean, and you didn't know where the threat could come from, right? So you just Mm. always had to be prepared. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so taking you back to your initial training, was stress, um, was resilience, was there any kind of training in that that area?
3: Yeah, so I definitely think resilience has come more into the front and center for the U.S. military as the war has continued. I would say that honestly, in the beginning, I really don't remember having any training or conversations on resiliency. Um, every once in a while, you might have someone pop in and say, make sure you're getting enough rest and exercise and sleep and those things. But um, I mean, we used to laugh at people saying that because when the mission has certain demands, you have to sacrifice the sleep and the exercise and the healthy diet and all of those things. And so you just kind of do the best that you can with what you have. But um, but yeah, so a a little bit of training, but not too much.
2: Yeah, so that's a crucial aspect you mentioned. It's not just knowing what you need to do. It's making sure your employer allows you to be able to do some of those things, um, to have the time to do those things. So what did you end up doing then to make sure that you stayed well and stayed strong?
3: I had to employ some rather uh, unique techniques to help make sure that my brain and body were as well rested as possible. And it really did become increasingly difficult over time. So, you know, when I was, we call in garrison is when you're not deployed. So when I was at my home station, it was a lot easier to get my morning workout in and, and those kinds of things. But particularly when I was in the desert and in the Pentagon even, I really had to get creative. So um, one example was, uh, well, my faith is really important to who I am. It's very central to my being. And so I would actually have automatic emails sent to my work inbox that would have kind of some devotional information. And so through the course of going through normal emails, I might see it and click it. And in that moment, I might have maybe five minutes to... Review something that would give me a little bit of breathing room and recentering, but I would also end up, there was a closet I found in the Pentagon, a rather forgotten closet that I would literally grab my phone and go in there and hide for five minutes at a time, usually just five minutes every day. Um, where nobody could find me, nobody could bug me with any immediate requests, and I could just meditate. Or there's a resiliency app that I have that I would go through on occasion. And on top of that, the other kind of big thing I could remember was um, on the planes, the government planes I mentioned, they had Wi-Fi because these senior leaders needed to be accessible all the time. But I definitely made it a point. To protect the team's ability to decompress. And my kind of order to them was that while we were on that plane, they were not allowed to use the Wi-Fi. And uh, part of it was the Wi-Fi at the time was running at about uh, a couple grand US dollars an hour. And for me, I, I definitely didn't want to give the impression that we were being wasteful of government tax dollars. But on the flip side, I really was just kind of using it as a protection mechanism to ensure that the guys had at least some downtime on the jet to sleep and watch a movie or read a book or whatever it was, because it literally was the only downtime we had on those missions. So it was really critical for us. So.
2: How supportive was the team in terms of you obviously were taking time out when you needed it? Um, how supportive were they of that? Because I guess you're in a very male dominated environment. Was there a little bit of a macho culture there and, and and how did they see your efforts for resilience?
3: Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, to be honest, my team was really amazing. And I think if they accepted it, a lot of it was because I kind of made them accept it Um, as the boss lady. (laughs) I really viewed part of my responsibility as making sure that they were at their best every day. And so it was honestly a little bit difficult to upfront to say, hey guys, you know, if you need downtime, you need to ask for it and we're going to do everything we can to accommodate it. But more importantly, as the team leader, I had to make sure I was setting the example in that. And so, maybe the first couple times, it seemed a little awkward for me to do that because, as a female in a male-dominated world, I definitely wanted to make sure that I didn't present any areas of weakness. And of course, some people might deem that you know taking a mental health break as a sign of weakness. But for me, I really felt like it was a sign of strength. And um, over time, it just kind of became, I think embedded in our culture. So most of the team felt comfortable, I felt, coming to me and asking for some additional time off. And um, thankfully, because we had additional members on the team, I'm, I I might have been able to swap them out on a trip so they could have a few days off to spend time with family or, or whatever it was. But um, I mean, if, if anybody had any heartburn about it, they certainly never voiced their concerns to me. But um, it's definitely tough to do that. But it's just so crucial to your your health and well-being, right? So
2: how did you come up with the techniques? Like was it just experimentation or did you read books about it? Or or what did you do to to build up a practice?
3: Yeah, so I I started again with my faith-based practice. So as a Christian, you know, in the Bible it says like come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And so for me, I knew that in those moments where I was really exhausted, I had to make sure that I was focusing my attention on God. Um, So that's kind of where it started. But then just over time, talking to different people, they would kind of suggest things. And so there's one tool called Virtual Hope Box, and it's an app that I think some psychology students developed and it has a bunch of different resources. So um, you can actually upload pictures. So I had pictures of friends that and family that I just really love uh, just to remind me of happy places (laughs) and times. Um, They also have different options for meditations. And a lot of them are only four or five minutes long, which were perfect for my little five minute breaks I had. Um, They even have preloaded inspiring quotes and you can add your own. So I actually went through and added some Bible verses um, and they have different options for like coping cards. So if you're having a particular struggle with a particular area, it can remind you of like a technique that you pre-identified that has worked for you in the past. And so um, that one was really, really helpful for me um, because I didn't have to think about what my coping mechanism was going to be. I had a whole bunch just kind of at my fingertips that I could choose from. So um, between those and then just yoga and meditating, which I've known about for years, uh, those were my three kind of go-to techniques. So
2: So you've been working um, for a non-governmental organization since um, you left the uh, military, is that correct?
3: Yes, I work for an international non-profit that rescues victims of slavery and human trafficking.
2: So was that a a hands-on role or an administration role?
3: A little bit of both. So having worked out of the DC headquarters office, my responsibilities were to provide oversight and training to our investigators in the field who were doing the day-to-day hands-on type of work. But I did fly out frequently to kind of check in on them, do liaison with local law enforcement. I also did um, do some additional work as a bodyguard. So um, during my time with them, unfortunately uh, two of our, Uh, staff members and a client were murdered. And so Mm -hmm. there were kind of a limited number of people that had bodyguarding experience within the organization. And so they had asked me that to go out there and uh, help protect the team during trials. So yeah. Goodness. And um, what's next for you? Oh my goodness. So I actually just launched a coaching business uh, this past fall. So you know, I've just been through a lot of really extreme experiences and experienced a lot of anxiety and fear and self-doubt and exhaustion, and uh, I really am passionate about helping other people overcome those those barriers. Uh, I had to get really creative, but um, I think everybody really needs a mechanism and an opportunity to devise plans that work uh, best for them. And so that's what I do full-time now is just helping people with that. So I really, really love it. And yeah. So
2: do do you feel that it was a burnout? Was that a, a result of accumulative stress?
3: You know, that's a really good question. I... Don't believe that it was. I I did burn out several times during my career. But um, again, my life is really focused on my faith first above everything else. And I just really felt God kind of moving me towards this coaching practice. Um, I I do still work in justice related fields. So I am still working human trafficking issues because I have, you know, tools that, and, you know, skills that I don't think God gave me to kind of not do anything with at this point. There are a lot of people who are suffering, but um, I, thankfully, because of my coaching practice, I'm able to be flexible and kind of get called up as needed type of thing. But, but no, definitely. Yeah. My, my coaching business was just kind of a natural evolution, I think for, for me. So.
2: So what are some of the tools that you teach in your coaching?
3: Yeah. So the thing I love about coaching as opposed to maybe mentoring um, or consultant work is coaching really is about tailoring a plan for the client based on the client's values. So I'm not going to tell you what you should do. We're going to figure out who you are and what's important to you and identify the best tools and techniques that are going to fit for you, right? So um, if, if your issue is a resiliency issue, for example, you know, I just mentioned my faith-based practice and meditation and yoga and those things, you might not like those and those might not work for you. And so my job is to just kind of uh, identify who you are, what you stand for, and to help come up with an authentic plan for, for you moving forward so that you can live your best, most authentic life.
2: So do you share your journey with others, with your coaching clients? And I ask that because sometimes when I look at coaches and I look at their backgrounds and if they have done amazing things, I sometimes think, oh, maybe they were born that way. And maybe they can't teach because they just know inherently how to be resilient. Has anyone ever asked you that? Or, you know, how do you, I guess, share um, what your journey has been with others?
3: Yeah, so I normally will share my story if I feel like my client is stuck, right? So if we're trying to hash out a particular situation and they're just not finding the inspiration that they need to get creative and find a particular solution, or maybe they might just feel really defeated and helpless. I think part of the power of my journey and the thing I'm most grateful for is that even though I kind of suffered a lot. I mean, a lot of it at my own hands, right? It was kind of in my head where, um, I mean, if you looked at me, I am very petite. I'm a female. I look much younger than I actually am. And when I talk to people or clients and they say, you know, I I can't overcome this barrier. And I tell you, well, have you ever met a five foot, three inch midget bodyguard? Like, (laughs) no, neither have I. And if I'm able to do this job effectively, then you can do anything. I mean, I I really believe that that was a gift that God gave me to be able to share that testimony with people to help encourage them and say, yeah, imagine, you know, like, people expect a big, beefy old guy, you know, to, to be in that bodyguard role. And um, but God had it in my plan to be able to do that kind of job, I think, to help women, particularly through those internal struggles. And so I do share a lot of my story, not only with my clients, but um, also kind of starting in the blog sphere as well, um, just because, yeah, I, I think too many of us suffer from a lot of the same ailments. And it's just comforting knowing that, wow, you too, you know, you experienced the same things and you overcame. and. Um, And yeah, so.
2: Yeah, that human connection is so important, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Definitely. So did you feel that you had something to prove because you were small? Did people judge you, um, kind of look at you and go, can you do this?
3: Oh my gosh. Yes, absolutely. So that was definitely a concern of mine when I was much, much younger. I a lot of times when I would get notified of a particular promotion, right, so they would call and say, hey, you're going to go work with special operations. I was like, oh, my gosh, I don't think you have the right person. Are you smoking crack? Like, <laughs> I'm little, and what made you think of me? And thankfully, I, I had supervisors that were just really encouraging, and they, they saw the potential in me, and they would tell me, you're going to be just fine, you know. Yeah, so I, I was absolutely concerned of people judging me especially when I was much younger. But what I realized over time was, you know, for me again, being Christian centric, the Bible says that God demonstrates his power most powerfully through weaknesses. And so for example, being the little bodyguard I was, um, I thought that my size would be a disadvantage, but it actually turned out to be an advantage for me. So for example, Uh, We had learned that a lot of times if people who perhaps were maybe a little mentally unstable identified who the bodyguard is, right, so like the typical tall, really muscular guy with the earpiece in, they would challenge them, right, because they would say, oh, you know, I, I wonder if I can take this guy type of thing. But they would never look at me and suspect that I was the bodyguard. And so they would largely just leave me alone. And with bodyguarding, it's not about being rough and tough. It's about making sure that your protectee is alive and free from harm and embarrassment. And it doesn't have to look pretty. You just have to get it done, you know. And so... Um, I really ended up at the end of the day viewing my external appearance as an asset. And the same thing goes for when I was working with special operations. I thought that my counterparts wouldn't take me seriously, but it was fantastic being able to use my size and my skin color as a ruse. So I'm a little bit tan and my interpreter and I actually, I would dress up in the local dress in attire and we would go out into like these dangerous places and he would do all the talking acting like oh this is my wife you know she's not allowed to talk unless I tell her she can talk and he would kind of do a lot of the the legwork because he already knew we'd already pre-planned kind of what was going to happen and so I was able to permeate and penetrate certain locations that my white male counterparts couldn't Um, just because of my appearance. So that's definitely something I like to share with my clients and just other people I come into contact with is you just have to use your assets to your advantage and to the advantage of your overall mission. And it doesn't matter what you think the weakness is. I promise you it's actually a major strength. I love that.
2: I love that story. It's very interesting. Yeah. Thank Um, you.
3: And I just want to come back to
2: your faith because obviously it's strong and that is uh, spirituality is one of the major pillars of resilience. How would you help someone who says they want more of a sense of meaning and more of a sense of connection? How would you suggest they go about that?
3: Yeah. So I deeply believe that everybody has kind of a God-shaped hole in their heart, right? So people are usually searching for something and some type of meaning and um for me i found that you know with my faith in in christ and so if if people are searching for that meaning i would really encourage them to just you know pick up the bible and see what it says or you know talk to someone about their faith and just kind of explore what their values are and how how they want to present themselves in the world, right? Because I think at the end of the day, what we're all searching for is to be our most authentic selves. And God built us with a purpose and that purpose is really mighty and everybody's really unique. And, and so I I think that's part of the reason actually why I went into coaching is because So many of us suffer from our insecurities, and now that I'm on this side of kind of this extreme career, I just, it makes me angry when I meet people, and and they say the same negative things about themselves that I used to say about myself, because it's just not true, you know? Like, I wish I had spent all of that time and energy focused on doing my job or empowering other people or, you know, coaching or helping someone through a tough time. And so that's my mission now is just to go forward and make sure that other people don't kind of suffer the way that I allowed myself to suffer for so long. So.
2: Great. Can you share um, one of the tools that you use um, in your own personal resilience? Yes.
3: Yeah, so I already mentioned Virtual Hope Box, the yeah. app, which is just super amazing. The other thing that I love is – if I'm on the road, especially right, it's difficult to get exercise in while you're traveling. But for me, that's just a major resiliency tool that's very powerful. So YouTube has actually been really amazing with um, finding me great yoga drills that I can do in my hotel room or really like even on the plane sometimes. (laughs) And I love it because I could literally just check YouTube for, you know, if I only had 15 minutes, 15 minute yoga routine. And, um, that just really helped clear my mind. And, um, and yeah, so, uh, I guess between those two, and then of course the Bible is always my, my go-to.
2: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Alani. It's been an amazing story and I wish you all the very best with your coaching.
3: Yeah. And thank you so much, Lynn, for the opportunity to share my story and thanks so much for You doing this podcast, I think it's so important to share the word about resiliency and the different tools out there. And I'm sure you're making a huge impact out there. So thank you for everything you do.
2: Thank you so much for listening to the show today and thank you Lisa for the honour of uh, letting me speak to your audience today. It's uh, been a lot of fun. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you'd like to work with Alani the best place you can contact her is mightysparrowcoaching.com and if you'd like to check out a little bit more about what Inside Knowledge is about you can visit the website insideknowledge.com but I can assure you that Lisa will be back next week. Normal transmission will resume but thank you so much for listening.
1: That That's it for this episode of Pushing the Limits with your host, Lisa Tamati. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and share all this goodness with your networks so we can impact more lives with positive insights and inspiring conversations. And check us out online at www.lisatamati.co.nz.